0: All right, guys, I am super excited to announce the first ever roundtable discussion of the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast. And I've been for a long time, very impressed by all the people who are able to actually manage these things or host these things well. So I'm kind of intimidated, but super stoked at the same time. And uh, I would like to I uh, just introduce my guests with uh, their names because we have a really cool roundtable uh, gathering up here. So we have Jeff Futch, we have Alex Leaf, we have Adam Sir. and uh, co-hosting this particular episode with me is my friend Vincent Spragna. So and, and I am just able. I won't even say my last name because no one can pronounce that anyway. So um this will be a roundtable discussion about science. And in particular, how to think about science, how to interpret research, and kind of just uh providing some philosophical background as to the thinking process that should go into reading research or even just how to think. Whenever you hear something like, research has shown X, or research is indicating this and that. And just to preface this whole thing, this will be kind of similar to the roundtable discussion that Ian McCarthy has hosted on his channel, which was, what does it mean to be evidence-based, and that particular episode was geared more towards practitioners, and this will also have implications for those people but I am personally am always a little bit more concerned about the lay population like my mother for example because uh, these people will read all kinds of clickbaity headlines and will read a lot of these phrases like science has shown or latest cutting edge research has proven xyz and these people have no idea how to actually navigate between all these uh, sources of information so I want to provide some context for these people and also for all the upcoming or wannabe evidence-based practitioners that we all interact with on the Facebook forums who want to become scientists maybe in the future or are already on the path or maybe they have the ambition but but doesn't necessarily have the skill set or just critical thinking skill to actually step on the right path. So maybe a good spot, guys, uh, to start with this whole thing would be to actually distinguish between practical or anecdotal evidence and scientific evidence. We conduct experiments or any kind of research to determine something. How does that evidence differ in quality and also in reliability from just experiencing something from your for yourself? So you go to the gym, you do things, you observe changes in your body or the body of your clients, And then you have something like a scientific study or an experiment. What is the fundamental qualitative difference between these two forms of evidence?
1: Well, one of the big reasons we even have science is to try to compensate for how easily the human mind and our our, our observational apparatus gets fooled. Our own senses can be fooled all the time. And so ideally, that is why we do research. It's one of the major reasons why we do research is... To try to use tools that are more accurate, that are more reliable, that are, that we can count on better than our own senses and provide an extra bit of objectivity there. And so often when people are comparing anecdotes to more rigorously collected scientific evidence, what they're really doing is trying to uh, speak to the difference between, uh, just a very fallible, easily, easily mistaken human observation. Oh, I think I saw something flying with a The sky. I saw some lights in the sky or something, Um, and a person might assume that that's a UFO or that that it's a you know aliens visiting from another planet or something. Whereas if you're being scientific about it, (laughs) you know you try to look at well what else do we have besides just our own human senses and our own uh, biases maybe in order to understand whatever it is this phenomenon is that we're looking at. Um, And so one of the major purposes of science is that. And so that, that was one of the initial points I wanted to make. And maybe somebody can piggyback off of that with their own thoughts on it. But
2: I think that's a very um, I think that's a very good point you made there. That we have to ne- we need some sort of way to examine our world beyond just our subjective experience. Um, I wanted to also provide um, the counterpoint that um, ex- subjective experiences can be helpful for. Like if you're in the gym, for example, and you feel pain uh, while you're doing a bench press or something, then in that situation, I would certainly listen to my body, but I wouldn't. There's a difference between saying this exercise, for example, hurts me and this exercise will hurt anyone, whoever does it. So that's a very important distinction, trying to kind of infer
1: a conclusion beyond your own experience. Right. And, and I think that's what gets us into a lot of trouble. Um, a lot of people in, in the fitness world like to argue this exercise is better than that exercise or in therapy, this treatment works better than that treatment. And often yeah. they're drawing on their own personal experience and then they're trying to extrapolate that. They're trying to project that experience onto a wider net or a wider group of people and saying that this is always going to be the case. And I think we have to be very careful not to fall into the trap of doing that when we have better evidence to rely on. So if there's something that's more objective than just our own subjective experience, then we should really look to that more objective evidence and see what it says uh, about whatever broad claims we're trying to make.
3: Probably just add that anecdotes serve a really important purpose in that they help us identify areas to investigate further, right? Because if you see something interesting happen to yourself or to someone else, you're gonna ask why and that's where research comes in. Research attempts to explain phenomena, whereas anecdotes are an observation of the phenomena. And in light of that, anecdotes might also uh, be separated from research in that they have more practical application. Kind of like with diets. If somebody's doing something on a diet and they have a lot of success with it, uh, then you know maybe other people try it and they'll either succeed or fail and that has direct practical application regardless of the explanation for why um you know a lot of people like to get into this debate uh, with for example the ketogenic diet where uh, someone will go on a ketogenic diet and they'll drop a ton of body fat they'll feel great you know all these amazing things will happen And instead of it being due to some magic of the ketogenic diet, we have evidence that clearly explains, you know, you probably increased your protein intake and therefore ate less and therefore created an energy deficit that let you draw on your body fat, etc., etc. But most people don't really care about that. All they care about is, well, if all of that happens by going on a ketogenic diet, then I'm just going to go on a ketogenic diet because that solves a bunch of things at once. So it's explanation versus yeah, practical application, right?
1: That actually, I, um, um, well, I just wanted to say that that could actually be fodder for a great discussion in and of itself later on. Um, it's just you know when it's important to focus on the why's and the hows, and when it's important just to maybe care about well, does it work or not? And teasing those things apart can be tricky sometimes for people, and and you see a lot of arguments that pop up because people have different priorities in the conversation. Some really care about the mechanisms or care about those hows and whys, and then other people just care about, well, does it have efficacy or not? Does it seem to work or not?
2: I think I just wanted to add something to what uh, Alex said about the ketogenic diet is that this is also a perfect example of how an anecdote can mislead you because you can step on the scale after a couple of days on the ketogenic diet and you can say, "Oh, look, I lost, you know, several kilos of uh, body weight." And you will conclude, "Holy shit, this really, you know, burns off uh, my body fat." In fact, uh, you might actually have lost a lot of water and glycogen. So kind of your, your own experience kind of tricked you in that sense.
1: Yeah, so that's where we come back to the idea of you know, using measurement tools, using methods, being systematic uh, when we're doing scientific research or a scientific observation um, in an attempt to kind of keep from fooling ourselves. Right. I think it comes right back to that original goal, but a very important point.
0: Yeah, exactly. So would it be a fair conclusion to make on this that it's not necessarily the case that scientific evidence is superior to anecdotal one, but it's more so that it's just context dependent and the more broad generalized recommendations you want to make that apply to like wider larger populations of people, for example if you're a content producer, the more relevant and important scientific evidence actually becomes.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that's very fair. I think um, I find myself uh, quite often ending up with saying something like that. You know, if you want to make a broad claim about people in general, or, or if you want to talk about how a system works physiologically, you need some science to back that up. You need some some rigorously obtained evidence, collected evidence for that. But if your goal is just to like, well, you know, I'm going to find out what seems to work for me in the gym. No, you don't need a study, especially because research speaks to averages, which is a point maybe that we can save for later, but um you know, you can look at uh, research as a starting point. You're always going to have to refine things later to find out what may be the best for an individual anyway. So in that case, anecdotes might be very useful. And in, in fact, even what you would default to under certain conditions, it all comes down to what kind of question you're trying to answer, I think. Yeah, why I think it's worth noting that We paint this as a bit of a dichotomy for the sake of the question in that it's research versus anecdotes. But in most cases, I think they should probably be used together. If you have an anecdote that suggests one thing and then you have research on that topic that you can look to later or to verify for another person if you're trying to, in fact, make recommendations to people who don't have your same anecdotes is when you can use both very well to your advantage.
2: I would add to that that um, sometimes I see discussions where uh, we see some people linking to evidence like systematic reviews and stuff like that And other people respond by rejecting the research and then saying that their own anecdote kind of supersedes it And I think that's kind of um,
1: you should be very careful about that Yeah, so again, yeah, that's a case of knowing when it is or is not proper to accept or, or reject a particular claim or a particular type of evidence. You know, if, if somebody's saying for you, this particular thing must, you know, will work better. And here's my stack of research papers to prove it. Um, that's one. Yeah. thing. But if a person is instead just saying, well, in general, we think this is the case. And then you try to say, well, no, my anecdotal experience says this. And so I'm going to generalize based on my anecdote instead of generalizing based on an aggregate of evidence, then that
0: becomes a big problem. Right. Another question that came to mind on this is the question of how much stock should we place on one particular study or just a very limited amount of studies on a given topic? So I tend to see kind of two schools of thought on this generally, namely a a more conservative one where they are only willing to make recommendations based on science where there is a large amount of studies pointing in a given direction. And another where if there is even a small amount of research painting a certain picture about a given topic, they are willing to be much more assertive with their approach. So um, to give one concrete example, training frequency, right? So most of the research that we have, as far as I know, is examining training frequencies between one time a week to up to three, maybe four times a week, training frequencies per muscle group. But there is some small amount of research Actually, pointing in the direction that using much more higher training frequencies could be beneficial. And probably the most prominent example is the Norwegian frequency project, where more gains were seen with six days a week training frequency. And so the more conservative crowd will look at that and say, Well, okay, that's one study. Maybe when we have 10 more studies like that, uh, we can start thinking about it. And then there's the more assertive, proactive chem that says, Okay. There's a limited amount of research on this particular topic, but this study is very well designed. There's no reason not to take or not to use the takeaways of this study to form recommendations. So let's use much higher training frequencies than what we use so far. So that would be a, a good illustration of what I mean. So so with that, how cautious should we be to make broad conclusions based on one study or only a limited
3: amount of studies? Right. Well what's the what's the cost of not implementing it? Uh, because this is a, also a perfect example of where we get back to combining research with anecdotal experience, right? If you're training yourself or others, then you're going to be able to observe how your training routines impact the person's progress. And so if you have one really strong study that comes out that's very suggestive and you've been doing something different, then... You could say, okay, I'm going to try this new thing and see how it's been, how it compares to the results I've obtained in the past. And then you can combine your anecdote with it to determine whether or not it has validity or not. Um, And there's really not a huge downside to, you know, giving it a shot. Uh, Whereas on other topics, for example, when you look at different adjunct treatments for cancer or treatments to replace conventional therapy altogether, uh, then a vastly larger degree of skepticism is necessary because if you screw up, then you can literally be someone's life, right? So there's a huge risk associated with embarking on uh, new research. But with training, it's like you could try something for a couple months and if it doesn't work, then what have you really lost?
1: Yeah, I I had a feeling that Alex was going to be able to handle up on that question rather well.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that was a really (laughs) nice answer.
1: I I just want to explain
2: to our viewers that adjunct uh, treatment uh, means um, combination type of treatment where you uh, have like a main treatment and then you might add like a secondary
1: treatment to it, if that's what you meant, Alex. Yeah. So I guess a a broad point to make here um, that's coming through in what Alex is saying is that you have to do this kind of cost-benefit or risk-benefit analysis on, okay, if I, if, if I decide to uh, suspect that this research result is true or is accurate and I implement it in my own life, how much is it going to cost me versus not? And then how much do I, do I stand to gain if it is true? Um, and so those things are vastly different between changing exercises to see about, you know, glute gains and, you know, how might I might improve that – versus, yeah, uh, changing the treatment I'm using uh, to manage an aggressive form of cancer. And so it's okay if people arrive at different conclusions because their priorities are different or because the risks that they're incurring might differ. And uh, I think a lot of people argue really till they're blue in the face about this and say, like, no, you have to accept this is true or no, you can't accept this is true, when really there's a lot of subjectivity there. It really depends on what that individual has to gain or, or to lose by um, by implementing whatever uh, whatever that study is suggesting might be might be going on. Hopefully, I didn't confuse things by saying all that.
2: <laughs> I think um, maybe I should um, add like a different uh, part of the discussion is that um, this is the um, the perspective perspective of the individual. Right? you're looking at uh, whether yes, one person can stand to benefit. I also want to add that we there's a different question, which is how would people on average Um, how would that work like high frequency versus low frequency for example and uh, for the individual there's also some other uh, considerations that you need to be careful about for example let's say you are going from low frequency to high frequency and the high frequency really improves your strength like Exponentially in a very short period of time. So you might conclude from this individually that oh look high frequency is really the best way For me to exercise. However, if you are chronically under training previously to this, it's actually just the increase in volume that might lead you to perform better but it, it's not necessarily the high frequency in itself. It's just that you did more and you did too little previously And the same might be true if you reverse the situation if you train with enormous volumes I think uh, Abel you um, mentioned this on Facebook that you recently changed your routine from going very hard all the time Yeah, and then going um, a bit easier and let's say that makes you have some serious gains Then that actually might be that you were over training or overreaching. So yeah. <laughs> that's something to consider and also for the oh. just want to add a, A point on the um, looking at seeing we also can look at this from like a probability perspective. How how will this um, affect people in general? So I guess you you guys could also add your thoughts on this.
1: Sure. Yeah. And and yeah. And um, yeah. How many different different factors can explain whatever phenomenon you're seeing? If a person wants to, and that's a whole big can of worms to open. But um, if a person wants to say. Oh, this method seems to work for me, and that's what I'm going to do. I say, great, go ahead. You know, th- I'm not going to argue with somebody about that unless it's a friend and I, I want to tease them a little bit. But uh, generally, I don't care. If a person wants to make broad claims again, you know, and say this is how the system works or this is what's best for people in general, then I'm going to stop them if they don't have a reasonably compelling argument based on some evidence and good reasoning and a bunch of factors. Um, but yeah, so when a person has this anecdotal experience, when they have this n of one, that is, I observed myself going through this particular training regimen or what have you, and I observed these res- results, well, there's no control there, right? You don't know what would have yeah. happened if this person had been uh, had just done nothing or if they had gone under a different set of circumstances, a different t- type of training protocol. And so you have to be very careful um, when making very firm declarations about what would have ha- happened if somebody had done something differently. Because if you didn't test it, then you don't know. And that's where research really uh, shows a lot of its value, I think, is because you can set up control groups, or you can set up different groups and uh, compare different things head-to-head at the same time. And, you know, it's one of many things that research can do for you. Um, So that's that's really a a whole separate discussion, you know, how do we control for variables and, uh, you know, what is confounding and all of that, but, you know, just planting the seed for a future discussion. Yeah, I mean, I just want to add an example to
2: your point there, that, for example, let's say you want to take a supplement. So you're taking melatonin to, let's say you want to improve your sleep. Yeah, you take melatonin and uh, the night of you sleep very well. So your conclusion is going to be, well, look, melatonin worked. (laughs) But actually, you don't know. Even if you, let's say in an alternate universe, you didn't take melatonin, like an alternate control universe, and you still slept well, right? So you would be falsely concluding that the melatonin was the cause of your uh, sleep, your good
1: sleep, rather than just random, random variation in your sleep. Right. And this speaks exactly to how our senses can fool us. We can mistake correlations for causal relationships when we shouldn't do that. And good research, not all, all good research helps us to tease apart those things and separate causation from mere correlation that's caused by something else. And, uh, yeah, that's that's always a struggle that's trying in our own day-to-day lives to to know, well, did this happen for the reasons that I suspect? It's it's a struggle, even for the best scientists. Though.
0: I think here might be a good place to bring up the rule of critical thinking, but if anybody has some other point that you think would be worth mentioning here, then feel free su- to suggest it.
2: Um, there was one thing you mentioned. Um, it was regarding the high-frequency study, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the question whether you should uh, trust one study. So, I think it's necessary to always look at the as much as possible of the literature as once. Because when people say, you know, you're cherry picking, it's when you pick one study and you, you, know, you use it to prove whatever method it is you're using. So I think that would be, it's cherry picking, it's just generally bad. You, we have to look at the in, entire literature as much as it's uh, feasible and try to come to general conclusions. And I can elaborate on that, but I don't think uh, it would take too much time.
0: Right, so on the role of cherry picking... Um... There is this common phrase thrown around a lot that you can find a study to show pretty much anything. Uh, so, is this actually true that you can find a study to quote unquote prove anything if if you're good enough with cherry picking?
1: Um, I'll say you. Can, it depends on your definition of the word proof. <laughs> which is a word I don't even like to use um, in the context of science because we don't absolutely prove anything. What you can do if you're good at twisting words, if you're good at twisting interpretations or uh, altering the way data are represented, that kind of thing, um, you can make arguments to support just about any claim with some exceptions. Um, there are certain areas where there is just no research evidence at all for a particular thing. Um, but in principle, the idea does hold true in the sense that you can pro twist stuff to support your argument most of the time. I think,
2: um, that's, that's we, my take. We, I think that's a very good take, Kim. But we might, depending on our viewership, we might need to explain, like, kind of the, the fundamentals yeah. of science here. Because uh, if not, we might um, lose some people. So I would say that we need um, to see that science today is based on probabilities. And so nothing is really proven it's all yeah. based on probabilities. It's called, uh, if you want to look it up, uh, you can search for uh, inductive reasoning, you can look at uh, probabilistic causation, and that's like the technical terms, but um, that's why every study lends evidence, you could say probabilistic evidence. It If you have ten studies saying one thing is true, then it's probably more likely to be true than if you have 50 50 mix of studies that are kind of contradict each other yes so yeah so that's a problem with if you choose yeah. one study and you have 10 studies saying the exact opposite then, then that's just that's cherry picking then you've chosen the exception
1: yeah and and this is something that gets frustrating for people when they're just starting to read research because they'll read a paper that seems to conclude one thing or the authors rather seem to make a certain conclusion and they think oh okay but science says this and then they read another paper that says something different and it gets very frustrating and you need to be able to take a step back and have the perspective um, to realize that it's really what are the trends and what are in aggregate what are all of these research papers tending to show us the good ones the ones that are the studies that were conducted well anyway
2: yeah
1: and uh, what and that's a whole nother discussion but you know in, in general what does this stuff seem to be saying and any good scientist should be able to say they need to be open to being wrong. So no matter what, in principle, you could have a really rigorous study come out tomorrow that blows holes in what we thought we knew, that, for lack of a better word, I guess, disproves um, what we thought was our understanding of a particular phenomenon. Now, the more research you've aggregated, the more research we've collected that seems to say one thing, the less likely it is that we're going to have research that overturns that, but it's never absolute. And yeah. so, as you say, Adam, it's it's inductive, which basically means, if people aren't familiar with that concept, it's um, the, you, you keep accumulating evidence of a particular thing over time, and you start to suspect that's probably generally true. So if I keep measuring uh, Caucasian male uh, rates of uh, Caucasian male heights or something, over time I'm going to start to get an average that tells me that, well, in general, these people probably average around this height and you know so that would be sort of an inductive reasoning or an inductive process i go through i don't know if it's absolutely true that every person is going to have a particular height but i can conclude that it's generally going to be somewhere in this neighborhood if i continue to collect data over and over and over again and make repeated observations of that particular group of people maybe that wasn't the best example but it's, it's a the good first point to pop into my head
2: <laughs> it's a good point because it's also practical to some to a large degree for example if i say i have a man and a woman Who's more likely going to be taller? So probably the man is going to be taller, just based on statistics. Now, we wouldn't say that the man would for certain be taller, because uh, you can't find exceptions. So you can find a short man and a tall woman, and then that wouldn't be true absolutely. But pro- probably the man would be taller.
1: Great. Much more eloquently stated than, than mine.
0: <laughs> that was very illustrative. I like that example. <laughs> yes.
3: Yeah. I think it's important with that too, to add that um, research deals in averages, right? So you're gonna have people who respond to various degrees to an intervention. And what research is telling us is that on average, we it's likely to see this effect. But any one individual, could have an effect that is vastly superior or inferior to that. Um, And I think we see this a lot too with when we get back to anecdotal evidence, uh, especially with diets, um, particularly with very uh, social media heavy advocates of diets. Um, You might see vegan bodybuilders or people promoting a vegan diet who are incredibly healthy they're in really good shape. Uh, We have a tremendous amount of research uh, detailing the ins and outs of vegan diets that can tell us that it is not a healthy diet to follow for various reasons, but yet there are some individuals who seem to thrive on it, and that could be owed to things like genetic differences that allow them to convert more of the beta carotene into vitamin A, for example, Um, just minor things like that. And then those poster childs are who everyone who supports a certain belief point to as evidence, whereas they could be Mm -hmm. an incredible exception. And that's why it's important to come back to the research and say, okay, overall, we should expect this effect to occur but that doesn't exclude the possibility that some people might show the complete opposite effect. And that's one yeah, coming I, back to a reason why we need to rely on research to explain our observations. Right.
1: Excellent. Yeah, very, very good. I think points.
2: that's great. Yeah, that was beautiful. And also it shows us that, you know, you see studies, let's say with high intensity training, let's say high intensity training leads to, greater increase in strength on average, right? So it's important to not think that, oh, I will increase my strength with 10% if I do this high-intensity training program that they used in the study. Because you might be one of the low responders. A low responder is somebody who does very poorly on a certain type of diet or training program. So you might actually lose strength if you're a low responder compared to a high responder.
1: Right, you know, it's so... There, there are always going to be ex- these exceptions out there. There are always going to be examples of people out there who don't seem to follow the trends, and that's okay. Um, it, it, you would expect to see exceptions under most cases. Uh, it would be very, very, very alarming to me if every single person I ever ran into fell right in the middle of the bell curve or right in the middle of the average or the range that I saw on a particular study. study. I don't ever expect to see it to line up perfectly, and uh, I think we need to be okay with that. Uh, that there's going to be that root, that variation. Um, but just knowing that the research gives you, if you don't know anything else about a particular individual, it gives you the best probable starting point in many cases. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, you figure out personally, okay, does this work for you or not? How are you going to respond? And that depends on a variety of factors, including things like genetics and, and
0: other confounders. So, obviously, research ultimately has to flow through people. People who publish actual papers and then further down the line, people who write articles on websites, maybe who write research reviews, and then there are those who read research. So let's talk about, for one, who should even read research in the first place? Who are those who are most likely to benefit from it? And then maybe let's just talk in, general, in a general sense of the actual role of the authorities and experts in this whole picture and perhaps the responsibility uh, that they have.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, ideally, I would love to see everybody on the planet reading research, but realistically, um, you have to have the right skill set, or you're not going to be able to get anything out of it, unfortunately. And so, really, we should focus on. I think if your if your job requires you to make decisions that affect other people's lives and the information that you're drawing on originally came from research, then you need to be able to stay on top of it. For example, if you're a neurosurgeon and then there are new neurosurgical techniques that are coming out all the time that are being researched or new procedures that are being investigated clinically um, in clinical research rather, then you need to be on top of that. You need to know what is most likely to help your patients. Um, because their lives and their livelihood and survival rates and, you know, their quality of life will be affected by the decisions you make based on that research. Whereas, you know, if you work at a gas station somewhere, you probably don't, doesn't matter how much research you read. It probably won't influence how well you do your job. Right? Um, so that's my first point to that. Um, before I ramble on, maybe others want to chime in for a bit. Okay. <laughs> um,
3: well, I, I'd say, you know, it's a difficult question because like you mentioned, ideally everyone would be able to read and interpret research and so that they could make educated decisions for themselves and people whom they influence. Uh, but from a pragmatic perspective, that's just not realistic because a lot of people don't care about stuff. Um, we also have to keep in mind that research right. spans a lot of different fields. So a mathematician might stay up to date on research and math, whatever that would be. Uh, whereas I didn't, I don't even know if research and math even exists. Um, I don't know if that's a thing, uh, but nutritional is, science. And
1: it's impossible okay. to follow. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, yeah.
3: On the other hand, nutritional science or science dealing with exercise, physiology and fitness are all things that we stay up to date on. Um, or at least try to and so you know should everyone be able to interpret research no I wouldn't expect everyone to Um, should people stay up to date on the things that interest them yeah they probably should but then you run into the issue of well does the person have the ability to and with that I mean there are a lot of individuals out there who have an interest in health and fitness and so you would like to say, well, maybe they should stay up to date on the research. But a lot of them don't have the uh, experience or knowledge to stay up to date on it accurately. And yeah. when it comes to dealing with themself, uh, it it can run into problems. But I mean, you know, that's their problem. Who cares? Where I would take issue with it is when you have people who try to interpret research and then they do it inaccurately and they begin to misinform others by spreading their own personal inaccurate interpretation of research. And we see that a lot today on this popular media. Um, you know, whether it's Dr. Oz on his shows uh, talking about stuff that's just completely bogus or whether it's a really popular individual on Facebook who uh, blogs about studies that fit a particular bias and will manipulate research to support whatever he's trying to he or she is trying to say.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think both uh, Jeff and Alex had excellent points here, and it's just it's. I think I would lean heavily on the side that it's almost pragmatically impossible to stay up to date. Um, on uh, on like more than a couple of topics. Like I just finished um, an article on keto, which uh, myself and others, uh, including Vincent, helped um, write and add uh, contributions. That uh, we spent like months on just the ketogenic diet and reviewing the research there. It takes forever. It's <laughs> it's so much work. And then now look at all the other topics that like might interest you: politics, psychology, nutrition, and not just. field of nutrition but every subfield and the sub -sub subfields of nutrition it's just it takes too much time to be knowledgeable like you you would need to be an expert in every subfield which takes too much time now you might you might be able to stay up to date on like you know follow the conclusions of systematic reviews and meta-analysis which is a nice way to save time or listen to experts but that's that's i guess the question is should we trust experts then right yeah
1: and it's You know, I, I think this, this kind of starts with just the notion of, well, being very generally scientifically literate, that starts people off on the right foot. Um, can I can I take a Bill Nye perspective for a moment where he says, you know, if you can at least appreciate, if you can at least appreciate science, if you can at least appreciate that there are people who know more about certain subjects than you do, uh, or that you do, or appreciate that our own senses can lie to us, and so we just have to be careful about the conclusions we make. Just that awareness in and of itself tends to make people better thinkers. And then from there, they tend to be able to, not always, but generally they tend to be much better at uh, at interpreting claims that are made, you know, that are given to them, and they get better at seeking out people who are actual experts in a field instead of just reading a blog and taking that at face value. And so uh, that, practically speaking, is something I think everybody can do, is just learn to be more appreciative uh, of the process and just learn to question themselves. But that's, that was just my little soapbox point there for a moment.
2: It's it's a good point because it's actually a the, um, the point about critical thinking.
1: Yeah.
2: Is that uh, critical thinking is actually perhaps more important than necessarily staying up to date on your topic of interests.
0: I think this is a good point to bring up the issue of critical thinking because this is something that I'm always kind of on the fence with because on the one hand, I do see the benefit for a researcher to have the mindset of quote-unquote questioning everything. But at the same time, as a person who just consumes content from others at at some point, if you're of the mindset that you're always going to question everything, then you may get to the point of wheel spinning. So it's, it's pretty well established at this point that high protein intakes are generally beneficial for resistance trainees, that training volume is an an important driver of muscle hypertrophy. So I guess if you were to question everything, then you would get to the point of, you know, questioning whether the earth, earth is not flat. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Uh. Which is actually a bad example because some people actually do question that. But at what point do you get to the territory where you're better off just trusting the foundation that has been laid down to you by so many other people before you? And it's not necessarily important anymore to question these notions anymore.
1: That, I think that's sort of a case-by-case thing. I don't think there's necessarily one line that gets drawn so much as just a set of procedures that you follow that... Might help you to be better at making that uh, figuring that figuring that answer out. Um, so if you have say read a few textbooks or been through a few textbooks on the subject that have said something, the latest research or say maybe the summaries of the research recently, and uh, maybe a majority of people in the field who seem to know what they're talking about are all saying something similar, then you can probably uh, you can probably bet that there's some accuracy to what they're saying. Um, if there's still a whole lot of contention back and forth among people who are actually producing research or who are actually at a very high level in the field, that's a separate thing. But it's, yeah, it's difficult to say that there's like one line because it really, it depends on what, what you've seen and what the specific topic is. It's, <laughs> the answer is almost always it depends, at least in my mind. I think,
2: yeah, well, I'm oh, sorry, go on.
3: I was going to say, since most people here are probably interested in nutrition and fitness science, I would argue that for the most part, you're never going to reach the point where something is set in stone unless you're dealing with very specific mechanistic evidence to explain the biochemistry and the physiology behind certain phenomena. Um, But when you're dealing with the bigger – and even there – you run into issues for example uh we first discovered that cholesterol played a role in heart disease in the 1920s because of research in rabbits and feeding them a bunch of dietary cholesterol right it took more than 50 years before we realized that these initial studies with dietary cholesterol in rabbits were completely bullcrap and not applicable to humans um and it wasn't until at least fifty years later that people actually started producing research and opinions to go against this uh, kind of accepted normality. Um, and so, when you you think about a lot of the stuff that that we believe today, um, you know how much of it is going to change fifty years from now. Uh, yeah, like we we really don't know. There should always be a degree of skepticism. I want to give a second example uh, that might ruffle some feathers, and that's going to be uh, Gary Taub's uh, carbohydrate insulin hypothesis of obesity. Um, so we know Kevin Hall tested this directly and showed that manipulating insulin levels via dietary carbohydrate intake uh, does not affect fat loss so we know that insulin per se doesn't affect fat loss uh, because a ketogenic diet and the standard American diet had pragmatically similar effects of uh, fat loss effects right so a lot of people now have used that and dismiss insulin as playing a role in manipulating body fat mass altogether Um, where I would argue that that's inappropriate is because all of the research we have on that topic is under hypocaloric conditions where people are in an energy deficit. We, we literally don't have any evidence showing how insulin levels affect fat gain in an energy surplus. And I can vouch for this because I recently published a manuscript with Dr. Jose Antonio on the effects of overfeeding on body composition. And so there's only like 25 studies to date that directly measure body composition, uh, between groups overfeeding on different macronutrient compositions. And only five of those studies are in athletes, uh, the remainder being in sedentary people and none of them were designed to directly investigate the role of insulin or any hormone on body composition changes. So, whereas a lot of people might look at Kevin Hall's work and Gary Taubes' hypothesis and say it's been bunked, I would say that, well, yeah, when you're dieting, clearly other factors override whatever role insulin may or may not play. But when you're in an energy surplus, which is actually what Gary Taubes is getting at since people with obesity are in the surplus, they aren't in a deficit or else they wouldn't be obese, we still don't know how circulating insulin or other hormonal levels influence changes in body composition. And so for all we know, you know, 20 years from now or even shorter, we might actually have research that does show that eating a low carbohydrate diet promotes favorable changes in body composition during overeating, uh, simply because of the hormonal changes that it induces. Um, That's just pure speculation. the time but it's a possibility remember research is about probabilities
1: yeah, yeah that's uh-huh. something great points there um it again it yeah. speaks to just this, this notion that we have if you want to be scientific in your thought process you have to be open to uncertainty One, that's a key thing I, I tell my students this i tell anybody who will listen to this if you're not okay with at least some degree of uncertainty you can't do good science you just can't um, because at any point you can always overturn an assumption or a conclusion that you previously made because uh, maybe today the best evidence is indicating certain things, but it's never absolute. And so to Alex's point, we could find that under particular cases, so under uh, high, hypercaloric or high calorie, you know, uh, calorie surplus conditions, we may learn something very different and very new about how insulin plays a role in the development of obesity. And uh, so that speaks to a, a second point that we have to understand the the conditions under which a study was actually carried out. And while many people in the evidence-based fitness world have great intentions, I think one of the byproducts, one of the negative side effects uh, of this surge in interest in science is that a lot of people are kind of jumping on bandwagons like, oh, everybody in my end circle is saying that uh, the work of Gary Taubes has been totally debunked, and so the, the book is closed now, and that they don't necessarily take a nuanced enough approach to realize that, okay, certain claims have been falsified or, or, or not indicated by the research, but these other things are still open, and we shouldn't close the book on all of them. Um, that's the intellectually responsible thing to do, is to still you know, leave yourself open to what is still possible based on what has actually been tested in the
0: literature. right. So speaking of Gary Taubes, um, it once again brings up the question of authority because for most people, the number one source of scientific information is, is content from content producers on the internet. And while it's certainly not an ideal scenario, as in a perfect world, everybody would go straight to the source of good scientific information. Do you think it's even possible to avoid relying on authorities to get the information you want to consume and to eventually Having to find people that you actually can trust. All right, guys, that was part one of this roundtable discussion. I hope you enjoyed this. I guess this provided some real cool mental calisthenics to those who are interested in this kind of a thing. So, this was more of a nerdy discussion, but I'm actually planning to air part two next week. So, um, stay tuned for that. And uh, yeah, see you next time. Hey guys, I just want to tell you again that your inputs for this podcast will help it grow more than anything, and your requests, ideas, and comments will contribute to awesome content going live on this channel and podcast more than anything. So if you want to contribute, the best thing you can do is to go on Facebook and look up sustainable self-development. You'll find both the page and the Facebook group that is dedicated to discussions and ideas being thrown around. Go there and note down your comments about what kinds of topics or guests you want to be featured on this podcast and YouTube channel in the future. Just keep in mind the general theme of this podcast and my YouTube channel, which is to help people becoming their best selves in terms of lifestyle, as it pertains to fitness and general personal development. This podcast is really dedicated to self-improvement, both physically and mentally. So keep that in mind. So thanks again for tuning in and see you next time.